Blog Talk Radio. Mama 
Mamba Mubiai, Mulubawaki Tanda. Wawaka Yembe, Wena Menshi. African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. I'm your host, Abayomi Azikawe. Uh, today is Saturday, September 25th, 2021. We are broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit, and we'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again uh, to yet another edition of our program. Later on, we'll be coming up uh, with our Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the visit of Rwandan President Paul Kagame to the northern region of Mozambique, uh, where the Rwandan Defense Forces have had troops stationed in support of the Mozambican government for several months. The South African President Cyril Ramaphosa has delivered an address to the nation in observance of Heritage Day in South Africa. The World Health Organization has announced that COVAX will decline its COVID-19 vaccines by 25%. And a Chinese executive for a high-tech company has been released from Canadian custody in a prisoner exchange. In the second hour, we will listen uh, to addresses uh, delivered at the United Nations General Assembly, a 76th session uh, held during uh, this week. We will hear speeches by the Secretary General of the United Nations, 
Antonio Guterres, the Deputy Prime Minister of Ethiopia, and the President of the United Republic of Tanzania. Finally, we hear a report uh, from the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, Director General Dr. John Nkangason. Uh, these and other features will be brought to you during the course of our program, so stay tuned. We'll take a musical interlude, and we'll be back with more of our program for this week. Thank you. 
really energetic and innovative, rhythmic, harmonic, pioneering. Malambo, 1974. And uh, right now we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of our program. And our lead story uh, deals uh, with the visit of uh, Rwandan President Paul Kagame yesterday uh, to uh, the southern African nation of Mozambique. And uh, Rwanda uh, has been assisting uh, the government of Mozambique in battling insurgents in the northern province of Cabo Delgado. Now, Rwanda's uh, President Paul Kagame on Friday, yesterday, uh, began a two-day visit to Mozambique's insurgent hit north, uh, where he has sent 1,000 troops to help local soldiers fight the jihadist militants. Uh, Rwanda in July was the first of several African countries to provide reinforcements uh, to Mozambique's army. Overwhelmed uh, by an insurgency in its gas-rich Cabo Delgado province linked uh, to uh, the Islamic State, Kagame uh, landed in the provincial capital of Pemba yesterday morning. Uh, the Rwandan Broadcasting Agency tweeted uh, in the Kiawanda language, uh, one of the activities planned during his two-day visit will be meeting uh, the armed forces and police, quote, sent to Cabo Delgado to restore peace, unquote. It added, uh, foreign forces have helped Mozambique regain ground uh, since militants launched a coordinated assault on the port town of Pamba uh, just this last past March, offsetting a multi-billion dollar gas project and raising international concern. Alongside Rwanda, uh, members of the 16-nation Southern African Development Community, SADAC, have also uh, been dispatching troops, uh, including almost 1,500 pledged uh, by Mozambique's neighbor, and regional powerhouse, the Republic of South Africa. The European Union has, meanwhile, set up a military mission for Mozambique to help train its armed forces. Uh, jihadist militants have been wreaking havoc in Cabo Delgado uh, since 2017, uh, raiding villages and towns in a stated bid uh, to establish an Islamic caliphate. The violence has killed more than 3,306 people, half of them civilians, and displaced at least 800,000 from their homes over the past four years. Uh, Mozambican forces, backed by Rwandan troops, struck a major victory in August uh, when they drove the Islamists out of their de facto headquarters in the port city of Mosambayo de Praia. Uh, but uh, the rebels have continued to spread violence. Some reportedly beheaded five civilians in the village of Namaluko uh, just last week around 150 kilometers, about 90 miles south of Palma. That's according to military as well as local sources. Uh, president Kagame and Mozambique's President Felipe Narusi uh, addressed the media uh, on uh, Friday evening. In other news, uh, President Cyril Ramaphosa has used uh, Heritage Day, uh, which is today, uh, the celebrations to appeal to South Africans spirit of unity and diversity as the nation works towards recovering from the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic and the deadly July unrest. Addressing the virtual nationwide celebrations under the theme, Celebrating South Africa's Intangible Cultural Heritage, Ramaphosa said citizens should use this period to reflect on what defined them as South Africans. Uh, the president said our unity was tested in the July violence that saw businesses and infrastructure destroyed 
as well as lives and livelihoods uh, being lost. Our belief in ourselves as a United Nation was shaken. Uh, we saw people destroying the very country we are trying to build. In the aftermath of the violence, uh, we have had to ask ourselves, who are we as a people? Uh, what, what is it uh, that defines our national character? He called on South Africans to preserve the country's diverse heritage and indigenous knowledge systems by encouraging young people to learn and record teachings uh, from their elders. Ramaphosa says families should enjoy telling and for children to spend time with their grandparents and uh, great-grandparents. You're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. And in other news uh, that is taking place uh, as well, and uh, we want to uh, discuss uh, the situation involving uh, COVAX, uh, which uh, is connected uh, with uh, the World Health Organization. There's been a report that they are going to uh, reduce uh, their uh, supply of uh, vaccines uh, by uh, some 25%. And, of course, that is a concern not only of the World Health Organization, uh, but also the uh, Africa desk of the World Health Organization as well as the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Now, supply shortages and export bans have forced the World Health Organization, uh, the COVAX mechanism, to reduce COVID-19 vaccine deliveries to Africa this year uh, by 25%. Now, this is at a time uh, when um, COVID uh, is still a major problem on the African continent and, indeed, internationally. The World Health Organization Africa said that COVAX was expected to deliver 470 million doses to Africa just this year. The platform was created to provide equitable access to coronavirus vaccines. Four million COVID-19 shots have arrived in the continent uh, via this platform just this last past week. The World Health Organization epidemiologist, Dr. Mpuma Benito, uh, said that a third of coronavirus vaccine doses pledged have so far had reached Africa. Quote, the pace of vaccination in Africa must rise by over seven times to around 150 million per month on average to meet the global goal of vaccinating 70% of every country's population. Unquote. Uh, more than 207,000 people have succumbed to COVID-19 on the African continent. And uh, we'll have uh, a special feature and a briefing from the uh, Director General uh, of the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, uh, Dr. John Nkengason. Uh, we'll have that feature uh, later on uh, in our program uh, here at uh, the Pan-African Journal. And finally, uh, in regard to the situation uh, where a Chinese uh, uh, executive uh, from a high-tech company uh, has been detained uh, for the last three years uh, by the Canadian government uh, at the aegis of uh, the United States. Uh, this, is, this, of course, is a major concern, uh, has been a major concern in regard to uh, North American-Chinese uh, relations, uh, whether it's in uh, Canada or in the United States. And uh, uh, when many uh, Chinese woke up uh, early this morning, uh, they surprisingly learned uh, that the return of Huawei's Ming Wanzhou uh, to China became a reality. 
Some said it was the best news in quite a long time. The high-profile case of Maine, uh, which has become a political dilemma significantly affecting the global geopolitical landscape, has been settled uh, through both legal channels and political wrestling, experts said, noting that China, the U.S., and Canada have seen the best scenario with much compromise made by the Biden administration in resolving the matter. It also helped pave the way for the positive interaction between the world's largest economies in the near future amid strained uh, China-U.S. relations. It was also one mistake of the U.S. administration that has been corrected in line with the request of China as China put forward two lists uh, to the U.S. during the bilateral talks in Tianjin in July, including the list of U.S. wrongdoings that uh, must stop, uh, which urged the U.S. to release Ming, uh, showing uh, that Beijing's U.S. policy began taking effect and remaining mistakes of the U.S. have to be corrected. Now, this is according uh, to an article that was published in the Global Times uh, earlier today. This same article goes on to say that after being separated for more than 1,000 days, Ming finally reunited with her family and such an emotional moment also aroused reactions from ordinary Chinese people who firmly believe that the motherland will always be on their back and save them uh, from crisis. The color red symbolizing China lightens the brightness in my heart, that Ming said in a post shared on her WeChat moment on her fight back home, uh, noting that uh, she deeply appreciates the motherland and the leadership of the Communist Party of China, and without them, she would not have been freed. An official report uh, by the Shenhua News Agency said that thanks uh, to the sustained efforts uh, by uh, the Chinese government, Ming left Canada on a chartered plane arranged by the Chinese government yesterday. Uh, Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesperson Zhao Bijan also welcomed her return in a post on his personal Weibo account. Ming's return once again shows China's steadfast position in defending the rights and interests of Chinese citizens in its diplomacy with the U.S. and overall foreign diplomacy. Li Heidang, a professor at the Institute of International Relations at China's Foreign Affairs University, told the Global Times earlier today. Such firm positions is also being taken as the backbone for Chinese citizens and companies overseas, inspiring numerous Huawei staff amid the U.S.-led severe crackdown on its 5G technologies and sanctions over the past three years. In turn, dozens of Huawei employees shared the moment on their personal accounts, uh, saying that uh, with the support of the government, uh, they would never yield to any unilateral foreign sanctions or bullying. Many ordinary Chinese cheered Ming's return, posting welcome notes on social media. Uh, Chinese netizens were also thrilled at the, at the news. Topics related to Ming's return topped the search list of uh, Senna Weibo for almost the whole day, with relevant posts being read uh, more than 100 million times. The Global Time reporter saw crowds gathering at the Shenzhen Maun Airport uh, with welcome home banners and they cheered on Ming's return. Some were family members and relatives of the Huawei staff, and they held the senior executive as a role model in facing U.S. hegemony and a national hero, while more than 30 million netizens uh, watched her arrival on live stream. And with that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the 
Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. And in concluding this segment of our program, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since then it has published thousands upon thousands of articles and dispatches in various newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on uh, to the Pan-African Newswire uh, so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, uh, all you need to do is go to uh, our website, and that's at uh, panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, if you'd like to have access to today's uh, Pan-African Journal, the worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for Saturday, uh, September 25th, uh, 2021, all you need to do is go to the Pan-African Radio Network, and that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And by going uh, to the Pan-African Radio Network at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal, you can also share these programs with other potential listeners. Uh, The programs can be shared uh, via uh, electronic mail. Uh, They can be shared by copying and pasting links onto blogs and websites. And the uh, programs can also be shared uh, through social media networks uh, such as uh, Facebook, and uh, Twitter. Yes, so we're going to take a break and we'll be back uh, with more of our program for this week.
Welcome back. And uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast, and that was the music of the Pointer Sisters uh, with the tune entitled Love, Too Good to Last uh, from 1980. And uh, right now we want to move into our focus on uh, the United Nations uh, General Assembly, uh, 76th session, uh, which took place uh, during the course of the week. And uh, we want to hear, first of all, from the Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, uh, who addressed uh, the uh, United Nations uh, during this time. The third plenary meeting of the General Assembly is called to order. First, the General Assembly will hear a presentation by the Secretary General of his annual report on the work of the organization under Agenda Item 112. I now give the floor to the Secretary General of the United Nations, His Excellency, Antonio Guterres. Mr. President of the General Assembly, Excellencies, I'm here to sound the alarm. The world must wake up. We are on the edge of an abyss and moving in the wrong direction. Our world has never been more threatened or more divided. We face the greatest cascade of crises in our lifetimes. The COVID-19 pandemic has supersized glaring inequalities, the climate crisis is pummeling the planet. Upheaval from Afghanistan to Ethiopia to Yemen and beyond has thwarted peace. A surge of mistrust and misinformation is polarizing people and paralyzing societies. Human rights are under fire and science is under assault. And the economic lifelines for the most vulnerable are coming too little and too late if they come at all. Solidarity is missing in action just when we need it most. Perhaps one image tells the tale of our times. The picture we have seen from some parts of the world of COVID-19 vaccines in the garbage. Expired and unused. On the one hand, we see the vaccines developed in record time. A victory of science and human ingenuity. On the other hand, we see their triumph undone by the tragedy of lack of political will, selfishness, and mistrust. A surplus in some countries, empty shelves in others. A majority of the wealthier world vaccinated. Over 90% of Africans still waiting for the first dose. This is a moral indictment of the state of our world. It is an obscenity. We pass the science test but we are getting an F in ethics. Excellencies, the quiet alarm bells are also ringing at fever pitch. 
The recent report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change was a code red for humanity. We see the warning signs in every continent and region. Scorching temperatures, shocking biodiversity loss, polluted air, water and natural spaces, and climate-related disasters at every turn. As we saw recently, not even this city, the financial capital of the world, is immune. Climate scientists tell us it is not too late to keep alive the 1.5 degree goal of the Paris Climate Agreement. But the window is rapidly closing. We need a 45% cut in emissions by 2030. Yet, a recent UN report made clear that with present national climate commitments, emissions will go up by 16% by 2030. That would condemn us to a hellscape of temperature rises of at least 2.7 degrees above pre-industrial levels. A catastrophe. Meanwhile, the OECD just reported a gap of at least 20 billion US dollars in essential and promised climate finance to developing countries. We are weeks away from the UN climate conference in Glasgow, but seemingly light years away from reaching our targets. We must get serious and we must act fast. Excellencies, COVID and the climate crisis have exposed profound fragilities as societies and as a planet. Yet, instead of humility in the face of these epic challenges, we see hubris. Instead of the path of solidarity, we are on a dead end to destruction. At the same time, another disease is spreading in our world today, a malady of mistrust. When people see promises of progress denied by the realities of their harsh daily lives, when they see their fundamental rights and freedoms curtailed, when they see petty as well as grand corruption around them, when they see billionaires joyriding to space while millions go hungry on earth, when parents see a future for their children that looks even bleaker than the struggles of today, and when young people see no future at all. The people we serve and represent may lose faith not only in their governments and institutions, but in the values that have animated the work of the United Nations for over 75 years. Peace, human rights, dignity for all, equality, justice, solidarity. Like never before, core values are in the crosshairs. A breakdown in trust is leading to a breakdown in values. Promises, after all, are worthless if people do not see results in their daily lives. Failure to deliver creates space for some of the darkest impulses of humanity. It provides oxygen for easy fixes, pseudo-solutions, and conspiracy theories. It is kindling to stoke ancient grievances, cultural supremacy, ideological dominance, violent misogyny, the targeting of the most vulnerable, including refugees and migrants. Excellencies, we face a moment of truth. Now is the time to deliver. Now is the time to restore trust. And now is the time to inspire hope. And I do have hope. The problems we have created are problems we can solve. Humanity has shown that we are capable of great things when we work together. And that is the reason that of our United Nations. But let's be frank. 
Today's multilateral system is too limited in its instruments and capacities in relation to what is needed for effective governance of managing global public goods. It is too fixed on the short term. We need to strengthen global governance. We need to focus on the future. We need to renew the social contract. And we need to ensure a United Nations fit for a new era. That is why I presented my report on our common agenda in the way I did. It provides a 360 degrees analysis of the state of our world with 90 specific recommendations that take on the challenges of today and strengthen multilateralism for tomorrow. Our common agenda builds on the UN Charter, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development, and the Paris Climate Agreement. It is in line with the mandate I was given by the UN 75 Declaration to seek a pathway to a better world. But to reach that land of our promises, we must bridge great divides. Excellencies, I see six great divides, six grand canyons that we must bridge now. First, we must bridge the peace divide. For far too many around the world, peace and stability remain a distant dream. In Afghanistan, where we must boost humanitarian assistance and defend human rights, especially of women and girls. In Ethiopia, where we call on parties to immediately cease hostilities, ensure humanitarian access, and create the conditions for the start of an Ethiopian-led political dialogue. In Myanmar, where we reaffirm unwavering support to the people in their pursuit of democracy, peace, human rights, and the rule of law. In the Sahel, where we are committed to mobilizing international assistance for regional security, development, and governance. In places such as Yemen, Libya, and Syria, where we must overcome stalemates and push for peace. In Israel and Palestine, where we urge leaders to resume a meaningful dialogue, recognizing the two-state solution as the only pathway to a just and comprehensive peace in Haiti and so many other places left behind, where we stand in solidarity through every step out of crisis. Excellencies, we are seeing an explosion in seizures of power by force. Military coups are back. And the lack of unity among the international community does not help. Geopolitical divisions are undermining international cooperation and limiting the capacity of the Security Council to take the necessary decisions. A sense of impunity is taking hold. And at the same time, it will be impossible to address dramatic economic and developed challenges while the world's two largest economies are at odds with each other. Yet I fear our world is creeping towards two different sets of economic, trade, financial and technological rules two divergent approaches in the development of artificial intelligence, and ultimately, the risk of two different military and geopolitical strategies. And this is a recipe for trouble. It would be far less predictable than the Cold War. To restore trust and inspire hope, we need cooperation, we need dialogue, we need understanding. We need to invest in prevention, peacekeeping and peacebuilding, we need progress on nuclear disarmament and in our shared efforts to counter terrorism. We need actions anchored in respect for human rights, and we need a new comprehensive agenda for peace. Excellencies, second, we must bridge the climate divide. This requires bridging trust between North 
and souls. It starts by doing all we can now to create the conditions for success in Glasgow. We need more ambition from all countries in three key areas, mitigation, finance and adaptation. More ambition on mitigation means countries committing to carbon neutrality by mid-century and to concrete 2030 emissions reductions targets that will get us there, backed up with credible actions now. More ambition on finance means developing nations, developing nations finally seeing the promised 100 billion US dollars a year for climate action, fully mobilizing the resources of both international financial institutions and the private sector too. And more ambition on adaptation means developed countries living up to their promise of credible support to developing countries to build resilience to save lives and livelihoods. And this means 50% of all climate finance provided by developed countries and multilateral development banks should be dedicated to adaptation. The African Development Bank set the bar in 2019 by allocating half of its climate finance to adaptation. Some donor countries have followed their lead. All must do so. My message to every member state is this. Don't wait for others to make the first move. Do your part. Around the world we see civil society led by young people fully mobilized to tackle the climate crisis. The private sector is increasingly stepping up. Governments must also summon the full force of their fiscal policy-making powers to make the shift to green economies. By taxing carbon and pollution instead of people's income to more easily make switch to sustainable green jobs. By ending subsidies to fossil fuels and freeing up resources to invest back into health care, education, renewable energy, sustainable food systems, and social protection for their people. By committing to no new coal plants, if all, coal, if all planned coal power plants become operational, we will not only be clearly above, above 1.5 degrees, we will be well above 2 degrees, and the Paris targets will go up in smoke. This is a planetary emergency. We need coalitions of solidarity between countries that still depend heavily on coal and countries that have the financial and technical resources to support their transition. We have the opportunity and the obligation to act. Excellencies, third, we must bridge the gap between rich and poor within and among countries. That starts by ending the pandemic for everyone, everywhere. We urgently need a global vaccination plan to at least double vaccine production and ensure that vaccines reach 70% of the world's population in the first half of 2022. This plan could be implemented by an emergency task force made up of present and potential vaccine producers, the World Health Organization, ACT Accelerated Partners and international financial institutions working with pharmaceutical companies. We have no time to lose. A lopsided recovery is deepening inequalities. Richer countries could reach pre-pandemic growth rates by the end of this year, while the impacts may last for years in low-income countries. Is it any wonder? Advanced economies are investing nearly 28% of their gross domestic product into economic recovery. For middle-income countries, that number falls to 6.5%. And it plummets to 1.8% for the least developed countries, a tiny percentage of a much smaller amount. 
In Sub-Saharan Africa, the International Monetary Fund projects that cumulative economic growth per capita over the next five years will be 75% less than the rest of the world. Many countries need an urgent injection of liquidity. I welcome the issuance of 650 billion US dollars in special drawing rights by the International Monetary Fund. But these SDRs are largely going to the countries that need them least. Advanced economies should reallocate their surplus SDRs to countries in need. SDRs are not a silver bullet, but they provide space for sustainable recovery and growth. I renew also my call for a re reformed and more equitable international debt architecture. The Debt Service Suspension Initiative must be extended to 2022 and should be available to all highly indebted, vulnerable and middle-income countries that request it. This would be solidarity in action. Countries shouldn't have to choose between servicing debt and serving people. With effective international solidarity, it would be possible at the national level to forge a new social contract that includes universal health coverage and income protection, housing and decent work, quality education for all, and an end to discrimination and violence against women and girls. I call on countries to reform their tax systems and finally end tax evasion, money laundering, and illicit financial flows. And as we look ahead, we need a better system of prevention and preparedness for all major global risks. We must support the recommendations of the Independent Panel for Pandemic Preparedness and Response. I have put forward a number of other proposals in our common agenda, including an emergency platform and a futures lab. Mesdames et Messieurs. Excellencies. Fourth, we must bridge the gender divide. COVID-19 exposed and amplified the world's most enduring injustice, the power imbalance between men and women. When the pandemic hit, women were the majority of frontline workers. They were the first to lose their jobs and first to put their careers on hold to care for those close to them. Girls were disproportionately hit by school closures that limit their development and increase the risk of abuse, violence, and child marriage. Bridging the gender divide is not only a matter of justice for women and girls. It is a game changer for humanity. Societies with more equal representation are more stable and peaceful. They have better health systems and more vibrant economies. Women's equality is essentially a question of power. We must urgently transform our male-dominated world and shift the balance of power to solve the most challenging problems of our age. And that means more women leaders in parliaments, cabinets, and boardrooms. It means women fully represented and making their full contribution everywhere. I urge governments, corporations, and other institutions to take bold steps, including benchmarks and quotas, to create gender parity from the leadership down. 
at the United Nations, we have achieved this among the senior management and our country team leaders. We will keep going until we have parity at every level. At the same time, we need to push back against regressive laws that institutionalize gender discrimination. Women's rights are human rights. Economic recovery plans should focus on women, including through large-scale investments in the care economy. And we need an emergency plan to fight gender-based violence in every country. To achieve the Sustainable Development Goals and build a better world, we can and we must bridge the gender divide. Excellencies. Fifth, restoring trust and inspiring hope means bridging the digital divide. Half of humanity has no access to the Internet. We must connect everyone by 2030. And this is a vision of my roadmap for digital cooperation to embrace the promise of digital technology while protecting people from its perils. One of the greatest perils we face is the growing reach of digital platforms and the use and abuse of data. A vast library of information is being assembled about each one of us, and we don't even have the keys to them. We don't know how this information has been collected, by whom, or for what purposes. But we do know our data is being used commercially to boost corporate profits. Our behavior patterns are being commodified and sold like futures contracts. Our data is also being used to influence our perceptions and opinions. Governments and others can exploit it to control or manipulate people's behavior, to violating human rights of individuals or groups and undermining democracy. This is not science fiction. It is science fact, and it requires a serious discussion. So too do other dangers in the digital frontier. I'm certain, for example, that any future major confrontation, and heaven forbid it should ever happen, will start with a massive cyber attack. Where are the legal frameworks to address this? Today, autonomous weapons can choose targets and kill people without human interference. They should be banned. But there's no consensus on how to regulate those technologies. To restore trust and inspire hope, we need to place human rights at the center of our efforts to ensure a safe, equitable, and open digital future for all. Excellencies. Excellences. Sixth and finally, we need to bridge the divide among generations. Young people will inherit the consequences of our decisions, good and bad. At the same time, we expect that 10.9 billion people will be born by century's end. We need their talents, their energies, their ideas. Our common agenda proposes the Transforming Education Summit next year to address the learning crisis and expand opportunities for today's 1.8 billion young people.
But young people need more than support. They need a seat at the table. And for this, I will appoint a special envoy for future generations and create the United Nations Youth Office. And the contributions of young people will be central to the summit of the future as set out in our common agenda. Young people need a vision of hope for the future. Recent research showed that the majority of young people across 10 countries are suffering from high levels of anxiety and distress over the state of our planet. Some 60% of your future voters feel betrayed by their governments. We must prove to children and young people that despite the seriousness of the situation, the world does have a plan and that governments are committed to implementing it. We need to act now to bridge the great divides and save humanity and the planet. With real engagement, we can live up to the promise of a better, more peaceful world. That is the driving force of our common agenda. The best way to advance the interests of one's own citizens is by advancing the interests of our common future. Interdependence is the logic of the 21st century, and it is the lodestar of the United Nations. This is our time, a moment for transformation, an era to reignite multilateralism, an age of possibilities. Let us restore trust, let us inspire hope, and let us start right now. Thank you. Welcome back. And uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal. That was the uh, Secretary General. I thank the Secretary the General Nations, for his uh, presentation. Antonio Guterres, and he was addressing the 76th session of the United Nations General Assembly, uh, which uh, began uh, earlier this week. And uh, right now we want to listen to the address delivered uh, by uh, the President of the United Republic of Tanzania. Let's listen in. Uh, the Assembly will hear an address by Our Excellency Samia Sululu Hassan, President of the United Republic of Tanzania. I request protocol to escort Our Excellency. On behalf of the General Assembly, I have the honor to welcome to the United Nations our Excellency Samia Sululu Hassan, President of the United Republic of Tanzania, and to invite her to address the Assembly. Thank you, Chair. Your Excellency Abdullah Shahid, President of the General Assembly, Your Excellency Antonio Guterres, Secretary General of the United Nations, 
Excellencies, heads of state and government, distinguished delegates, ladies and gentlemen, let me commence by joining previous speakers in applauding you, Mr. President, for being elected to preside over the 76th session of this August Assembly and for the exemplary manner in which you have been presiding over this session. I also commend you for the ably manner in which you mustered to make possible for us to meet physically despite unprecedented circumstances brought by COVID-19 pandemic. The holding of this of physical general debate this year, albeit with limitations, demonstrates again that humanity and multilateralism cannot and should not succumb to the virus. And thus, where there is a will, there is a way. This spirit is what we need going forward. It is why I support and subscribe to the theme of this 76th session that call all of us to build resilience through hope to recover from COVID-19, rebuild sustainability, respond to the needs of the planet, respect the lives of the people, and revitalize the United Nations. Mr. President, at this is my maiden speech at the United Nations General Assembly. Allow me on behalf of the people and the government of the United Republic of Tanzania to thank all members of the United Nations for your condolence message extended to our nation following the untimely passing of our late president, Dr. John Pombe Magufuli, on 17th March this year. May his soul continue to rest in eternal peace. We remain indebted to you for the thoughtful of comforting messages which helped us to prevail over that in unprecedented taste to our nationhood. It is in the same vein that I thank the outgoing president of the 75th session for dedicating a slot on the 59th plenary meeting of the General Assembly on 16th of April 2021 to pay tribute to our beloved late President Dr. Magufuli. Indeed, this was a gesture of solidarity and brotherhood. Mr. President, it is not by sheer coincidence that I choose to attend the United Nations General Assembly as my first trip outside Africa since I took the office. I did so out of my deep sense of conviction and faith in multilateralism in solving multitude of challenges that our world faces today. I'm here to assure you that under my stewardship, Tanzania will remain a formidable member of the United Nations and a dependable supporter of multilateralism. We'll keep our arms open to those who embrace us and engage with us. We'll continue to be Tanzania that you have known and relied on, a Tanzania that peacefully and respectfully coexisted and cooperated with all countries, big or small, mighty or weak, rich or poor, to make this world, our world, a better place for all of us. Mr. President, COVID-19 pandemic has reminded us how vulnerable we are as individual countries 
regardless of our size, wealth, or geography. As we meet here today, we have less than a decade ahead to meet our collective commitment to achieve the Sustainable Development Goals. I note with great regret that according to the Sustainable Development uh, Goals Report of 2020, right now the world is not on track to achieve the 2030 Agenda, mainly due to adverse impact of COVID-19. The report further shows that in some areas this pandemic has even reversed the progress that was already achieved years back. For instance, it is expected that around 71 million people who got out of extreme poverty will be pushed back into this, that situation because of this pandemic. What is depressing is the fact that these impacts are not felt evenly. We in the developing world are the most affected. It is therefore imperative that concerted efforts are taken, undertaken to address this devastating situation. Mr. President, developing nations must be assisted in addressing socioeconomic impact of the, uh, out of COVID-19. On this note, we are thankful to multilateral financial institutions for their efforts in saving many economies from collapsing. These kinds of interventions are important. We cannot afford to take refuge on the onset of COVID-19 as an excuse for not making sufficient progress on achieving sustainable development goals. Mr. President, Tanzania has not been spared by COVID-19. After the onset of the pandemic, we in Tanzania, and I believe in many other developing countries, were stuck in the twilight of protecting lives and protecting livelihoods. Measures advocated by the World Health Organization were geared towards protecting lives. However, in an economy like Tanzania, consisting of a bigger proportion of people living on subsistence economy, whom we need to keep them afloat, my country therefore adopted all necessary measures to curb the spread of COVID-19, including joining the COVAX facility to ensure that Tanzania gain access to the COVID-19 vaccine. The vaccination campaign has started in July this year with the most vulnerable communities and later on other age groupings. Mr. President, globally, when COVID-19 vaccines were being developed, some of us were hopefully that this would mean something good to all of humanity. Nevertheless, we have come to learn that the virus is moving faster than the global production of distribu and distribution of vaccines. As the vast majority of vaccines have been administered in high and upper middle income countries, with the current pace, it is less likely that we'll meet the WHO threshold of vaccinating at least 40% of people in every country by end of 2021, and at least 70% by the first half of 2022. The level of vaccine inequity that we see is appalling. It is truly disheartening 
to see that whilst most of our countries have inoculated less than 2% of our populace and thus seek more vaccines for our people, other countries are about to roll out the third dose, calling it booster vaccine. We tend to forget that nobody is safe until everyone is safe. It is indispensable that countries with surplus COVID vaccine doses share them with other countries. On, other, on another note, it is our humble request that the patent rights on COVID-19 vaccines should be waived for developing countries so that they can afford to produce the vaccines. This is not only a necessary move to end this pandemic, but also the right thing to do in order to save humanity. Mr. President, on economic fronts, the United Republic of Tanzania, like other countries, has not been spared by the effects of the COVID-19. Before the pandemic, our economy was growing at the steady rate of 6.9% compared to the current growth rate estimated at 5.4%. We are now embarking on reviving the tourism sector which was barely affected because of travel restrictions put in many countries as means to curb the spread of COVID-19. While slowly trying to revive most economic activities suffocated by the pandemic, the government continues to work hard to improve the business environment and attract more investment. Aware of the nexus between economic growth and governance, we manage to maintain peace and political, political stability with a vibrant democracy and institutionalized good governance practices upholding rule of law and human rights. Mr. President, I wish to take note of the Secretary General's report on our common agenda, which raises key issues of our common concern, such as gender equality, climate change, and youth development. On gender equality, COVID-19 is a threat threatening to roll back the gains which we have made. As the first female president in the history of my country, the burden of expectation to deliver gender equality is heavier on my shoulders. It is for this reason that I commend the initiative by the UN Women, UN Women France and Mexico, to organize the Generation Equality Forum that took place in Paris in June this year, whereby my country volunteered to champion for women's economic rights and justice. Aware that being passionate about gender equality is not sufficient, my government is reviewing policy and legal frameworks in order to come up with actionable and measurable plans to ensure economic empowerment of women, but also other aspects pertaining to gender equality and gender parity. We are also working on designing and implementation gender responsive microeconomic plans, budget reforms and stimulus packages with the objective of reducing the number of women and girls living in poverty. Mr. President, the challenges of climate change are really affecting livelihoods, peace and security and forceful displacement of our people. Tanzania government spends 2 to 3% of GDP to mitigate and build resilience of communities. And this is a lot in a country which is still grappling with poverty coupled with emergency 
of the COVID-19 pandemic. The pandemic has compromised our capacity to respond to harmful impact of climate change. Therefore, our actions today determine the future of our planet in terms of climate change. And in this regard, I call for transparent modality for financial disbursement and emphasize that development can developed countries should fulfill their commitment to contribute US dollar 100 billion annually by 2025 so as to facilitate the implementation of the Paris Agreement. Mr. President, Mr. President, in conclusion, I wish to echo my country's commitment in pursuing the principles of multilateralism as enshrined in the Charter of the United Nations. I urge other nations to continue supporting this August institution. The onset of COVID-19 has given to all of us a lesson that we are deeply intertwined and that unilateralism will not get us anywhere when it comes to challenges that transcend our national boundaries. A wise person once said, and I quote, alone one will go faster, but together we'll go far. Multilateralism must always prevail. Mr. Chairman, I thank you, and I thank you all for your kind attention. Thank you very much. On, be on behalf of the General Assembly, I wish to thank the President of the United Republic of Tanzania for the statement just made, and I request protocol to escort our Excellency. Welcome back, and uh, that was uh, the President of the United Republic of Tanzania, uh, Salima Saluhu Hassan, uh, speaking to the United Nations uh, General Assembly 76th session. Uh, just this last past week, uh, and you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide uh, Radio Broadcast uh, for Saturday, September 25th, uh, 2021. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'll take a break, and we'll be back uh, with more of our program.
Welcome back, and uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe, and uh, that was the voice of Detroit's own, uh, Anita Baker, uh, with no one to blame. We're going to go back uh, to the United Nations General Assembly, a 76th session that uh, began earlier this week in New York City, and uh, some speeches were delivered live, others were delivered remotely, and uh, this is a speech uh, from the Deputy Prime Minister of the Federal Democratic Republic of Ethiopia. Let's listen in. I now give the floor to His Excellency Demeke Mekonen, Deputy Prime Minister of Ethiopia. Mr. President, allow me to start by congratulating you and the Sicily country Maldives on your election as President of the 76th Session of the General Assembly. My appreciation also goes to Mr. Volkan Boskier for his able guidance of the 75th Session. Congratulations is also in order for Secretary General Antonio Guterres for once again winning the vote of confidence to serve the United Nations. I also thank the host country for the facilities availed to us in the midst of a global pandemic. This year's General Assembly takes place while we continue to grapple with the COVID-19 pandemic. The pandemic rattled all aspects of public and private life. It also revealed the power of innovation and the enormous potential of scientific research to serve humanity. I would like to take a moment to applaud the scientists, scientists, engineers, and everyone who have played a part in the discovery and rollout of COVID-19 vaccine. Evidently, science can serve humanity only if good faith and rationality guides politics. Unfortunately, Africa, with negligible vaccination rate, is left waiting for the drifts from the surplus of others due to vaccine nationalism. In addition, the economic devastation in developing countries from the pandemic is yet to be addressed by meaningful economic and financial measures. We hope countries with the means would advance cooperation that is cognizant of the global nature of the problem. With this pandemic, there is no isolated safety. No one is safe until everyone is safe. Mr. President, the true dignity and freedom of people lies with their ability to sustain themselves. Poverty and dependence on foreign aid cause 
political, governance, security, and human development challenge. Global warming is the most alarming driver of poverty. Agrarian and pastoralist communities and economies like ours with this livelihood face an existential challenge. The impact of climate change are destroying arable land and biodiversity, thereby disrupting our food system. Production of cash crops suffer from quality and quantity problems. Perennial flood and drought are straining the emergency readiness we have in place. The targets under, under the Environment and Sustainable Development Agenda are overdue and more be overtaken by events. Hopefully, COP26 will pave the way for climate financing and support to programs such as the Green Belt and Green Legacy Afforestation Initiatives that are restoring along the lost ecosystem. Mr. President, in the past few years, we heard from this podium voice of justified concern and call for rule-based world order and viable multilateralism. Ethiopia has always been steadfast in its support for multilateral institutions. Our position emanates not from rhetoric, but from our tragic ordeal during the death ruled based order was left in the shambles. We commend the declaration of return and renewal of commitment to multilateralism. At the same time, we see a glaring need to reiterate the fundamental values of sovereign equality, non-interference, and cooperation based on mutual benefit and respect. Multilateralism stands on the shoulders of states that ably guard their sovereignty, territorial integrity, and political independence. Multilateralism will meet its objective only if states are able, able stand free to manage their domestic and external affairs. Indeed, our human aspirations are inherently similar. However, our viewpoints that are underpinned by our diversity in cultures, history, and socioeconomic reality will not always be fully aligned. This diversity shall be viewed as an asset and no one among us should wish to prevail over the other, especially when it comes to values and policies dealing with our internal and external affairs. Mr. President, three years ago, my country, Ethiopia, embarked on a promising journey of reform. The change we introduced ushered in democracy, human rights, human development, and regional stability. It also opened avenues for dialogue and unity among divergent political and interest groups. Tapping into Ethiopia's rich history and enormous potential, the reform chartered our inevitable and bright future, placing Ethiopia as a new horizon of hope. It 
overturned a complex network of corruption, illegitimate political power, and illicit financial flows installed at the cost of national interest and the determinant of regional peace. The reform, however, was not without challenge. As any other democracy, our democratic process is an attempt to find a balance between stability and disruption. In Ethiopia, groups that consider equality as subjugation are making their best effort to create and prolong anarchy. At the hands of these lords of instability, we went through unimaginably inhuman attacks against citizens, instigation of violence and destruction of property that culminated in an attack against the Ethiopian army. On the night of November 4 last year, in a scheme orchestrated by a criminal group, the Ethiopian National Defense Force was attacked from within. The unsuspecting men and women in uniform were slain. The government of Ethiopia took the necessary measures to avert the grave danger imposed on us. Mr. President, while the government was addressing humanitarian needs, the disruptors applied their cruel design to aggravate human suffering. We were also caught by surprise and, to be honest, unprepared for the twisted propaganda campaign. Little did we know the power of privatized politics and foreign policy that clouds the truth from policy decisions. The criminal enterprise and its enablers created and advertised horrific imagery of fact incidents as if the real mystery of our people is not enough. Storylines are created to match not the facts but preconceived stereotypical attitudes. The government of Ethiopia meeting out its obligation to fulfill humanitarian needs, the declaration of humanitarian ceasefire, the commissioning of investigations, and accountability measures have not mitigated the propaganda campaigns. At this stage, we are nearly convinced humanitarian assistance is a pretext for advancing political considerations. Accused by agenda and revenue-driven media, convicted by misguided politics, we are now facing a unilateral coercive measure. Ethiopia opposed coercive measure. When it was applied against others, we advised against its application on Ethiopia. Prescriptions and punitive measures never helped improve situations or relations. Mr. President, the prudent measures we will continue to take are commensurate with the existential challenges we face. Despite the undue pressure, we shall live up to the solemn obligation to preserve, to preserve sovereignty, territorial integrity, and the political independence of Ethiopia. While cooperation and concern from our 
friends is welcome. We underline the need to employ constructive approach, cultivate trust, and create understanding. Attempts to extend, support, or even opine on an internal issue of a state requires full understanding about the complexity of the problem. It shall be noted the challenge we are facing is not limited to the boundaries of Ethiopia. The entire region is facing the destructive path paved for it by this group. Supporting Ethiopia overcome this criminal group is helping sustain regional peace. Dialogue has always been our preferred course of action. Accordingly, Ethiopia is open to candidates initiatives for peace. In this connection, we will work with the African Union and the High Representative, Representatives for the Horn of Africa towards an Ethiopia-led national dialogue. We only hope the African Union will be given the space to apply its own wisdom. I also underscore my government's unreserved commitments for the provision of humanitarian assistance and facilitate the operation of our humanitarian partners that adhere to the principle of neutrality, independence, and humanity and the, law of, the laws of the country. Apart from this, no excuse will justify any attempt to intervene in our internal affairs. Mr. President, had it been for the plan of the internal and external destabilizers, Ethiopia would have turned into rebels where the greedy and the archaic feast and thrive. Not only that, the political map of the Horn of Africa would have altered, worsening its existing volatility. With the, resil with the resilience of its people and the foundational cultural and religious diversity that made up of Ethiopian society, Ethiopia will continue overcoming its adversaries. Ethiopia will always be a beacon of freedom and symbol of peace. As a nation that had never posed a threat to security of other states, we will maintain our support to regional and global stability. At this historic juncture, Ethiopia demands and Ethiopia deserves a similar cooperation it's extended to others in the aftermath of attacks targeting their institutions. Mr. President, the political and security landscape in Africa is on a path of adversity. Forcible overthrow of governments joint military exercise, aggression, renewed appetite for intervention in sovereign countries, subversion of subversion and mercenarism, normalized and renewed scramble for natural resources, secret military pacts, geopolitical competitions and others are becoming pervasive. Unless we swiftly change course, this will be yet another round to destabilize Africa and this, infer this 
infertilize Africans in the determination of our destiny. We hope there will be more countries to lift the banner of multilateralism rather than the vagaries of unilateralism. Accordingly, Ethiopia stands ready to avail bilateral mechanisms and diplomatic solutions to resolve the border dispute with Sudan. It is incumbent upon our two governments to work for peace for the sake of our people that have the strongest bond of fraternity. Mr. President, the past year has also seen a milestone for the people of Ethiopia. Our experiment with, the, with democracy ascended one level with a free, fair, peaceful, and credible election with an unprecedented level of voter turnout. The Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, a hydroelectric dam project we fully financed, underwent a second year filling. Hopefully, we inspired others to develop local capability to plan, finance, and complete renewable energy projects. However, our humble attempt to light the house of millions of Ethiopians and create hope for our youth is politicized before global bodies. These people's projects also received unending threats. Ironically, we are accused and threatened for drinking from our water. On the matter of the Nile and the Gert, our confidence is in the might of the truth, wisdom, and justice that has always defined our path for cooperation. The generational desire to use our natural resource will not be stopped by a colonial legacy and monopolistic costs. We hope our negotiating partners are prepared for a win-win outcome under the African-led process. Mr. President, I would like to conclude my statement with a very important note on the role of my country in peacekeeping. Our troops successfully completed missions in Darfur and Abiyah. They paid the ultimate sacrifice in the most isolated mission areas, facing active intercommunal clashes, unconventional warfare methods, border disputes, and unabated administrative obstructions. Our troops have done justice to the most cherished name of their country through their service and sacrifice. I pay them my respect and express our pride. With the impending transition of the peacekeeping mission in Abiy, I would like to convey our best wishes for our two neighbors to amicably resolve their territorial disputes. We hope the sacrifice we made will not be in vain. I thank you, Mr. President, and assure you of Ethiopia's full support for successful completion of your presidency of hope. Thank you. Amasagnalo. I thank the Deputy Prime Minister of Ethiopia for his statement.
Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, the Prime Minister, Deputy Prime Minister of uh, the Federal Republic of Ethiopia, uh, speaking on uh, developments uh, in the Horn of Africa. And uh, we've been listening uh, to speeches uh, from uh, the United Nations General Assembly, the 76th session uh, that began earlier this week. And uh, we'll continue uh, the next uh, broadcast uh, to bring you information uh, about uh, these speeches that were were delivered uh, just this last past week. Uh, As I mentioned, uh, some of them were uh, in um, New York City, and uh, some of the uh, speeches, of course, uh, were um, delivered remotely uh, from the home countries of the uh, participants. And uh, we're going to take a break, and we'll be back uh, with more of our program uh, for this week.
Broadcast uh, for Saturday, uh, September 25th, uh, 2021. Uh, that was the music of the legendary uh, Phyllis Hyman, along with uh, McCoy Tyner on piano and other artists. We're going to uh, bring you our concluding segment, and uh, this is a briefing from the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, um, headed by the Director General John N. Kangasone, Dr. John, uh, and uh, Let's listen in uh, to uh, the Africa CDC uh, discussing the pandemic, the vaccination uh, rollouts, and other uh, public health issues across the continent. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. We are joining you as usual from the African Union headquarters in Addis Ababa in Ethiopia. My name is Wayne Musabayana, and I'm head of communication at the African Union Commission. Today we have with us Dr. John Nkengasong, who is the director of the Africa CDC, who is going to give us his usual briefing that he does every Thursday, including the epidemiological situation in Africa, as well as what is happening with vaccines and other issues around COVID-19. You will recall this is a press briefing strictly to speak about COVID-19 issues and to share information with all our colleagues from the media. So thank you very much for joining us. Dr. John today will also be touching on a very exciting development, which is the launching of the Eastern RCC. Those are the regional coordination centers for the Africa CDC. So there's more coming your way on that. But right now, let me bring in Dr. John for his briefing. Dr. John, good morning, and you have the floor. Thank you so much, Wayne, and a very good uh, good morning from the Africa CDC. And as usual, I will uh, give you 
uh, by the briefings on the current epidemiological situation on the continent, and then discuss uh, what we are doing as Africa CDC to support member states, and then conclude with uh, the distribution or situation of the vaccines on the continent. So let's begin with the epidemiological situation. As of today, September 23rd, uh, amongst the 55 member states, we have reported uh, a total of 8.1 million cases of COVID-19 across the continent. This accounts for 3.6% of all cases reported globally. The total number of deaths as we speak today stands at about 207,000, and the case fatality rate is about 2.5%. Uh, and that number of deaths represents about 4.4% of total death globally. As we have discussed previously, the continent is still going through a, a severe third wave. For the three countries, or 78% of our member states are currently going through uh, the third wave. And of these, for the three countries, 32 of them, are experiencing a very severe uh, third wave. Seven countries, and I will name them, Algeria, Benin, Egypt, Kenya, Mauritius, Somalia, and Tunisia, are currently experiencing a fourth wave. And of that number, uh, uh, four of them are experiencing a very severe uh, fourth wave, which means the peak is significantly higher than the, the, during the third wave. And let me just pause here and say that, just to put the severity of this third wave in context, that uh, between the period of June, July, and August, uh, where we saw the peaks of the, the third wave, uh, 72,000 people died in Africa. If you recall that the cumulative number of people that have died on the continent because of this COVID, is about, COVID pandemic is about 207,000. And if during the third wave alone, uh, 72,000 uh, died, it shows you the brutality and severity of the third wave. During that same period, we recorded about 3 million new cases out of the approximately 8 million. Yeah, so the third wave has been very severe on us. In terms of the variants, uh, for the four countries are now reporting the, the alpha variant, 38 are reporting the beta variant, and 40 are reporting the delta variant. Three additional countries uh, reported this variant uh, last week. That include Mali, Burkina Faso, and Sudan. If you now look at it, epidemiological trends, we'll do the the trends within the last week and then over the last four weeks. Between the, the period of the 13th and 19th of September, a total of uh, 104,000 new cases were reported across the continent. And this represents a 22% decrease in the number of new cases during that period compared to the previous week. The following five countries are reporting the highest daily incident per million population. Seychelles, Botswana, Lesotho, Sao Tome and Principe, and Libya. In terms of new deaths, we recorded a total of 3,300 uh, 3, new deaths 
during the, 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 the last week compared to 3,400 uh, the previous week, and this represents a 5% decrease in the number of new deaths recorded over that uh, time frame. <clears throat> if you now look at the period in the four weeks, that is between August 30th and 19th of September, we observed the following trends. In terms of new cases, we, we uh, noticed a 19% average decrease uh, during that same period, the period between August 23rd and September 19th. The following are the trends by region. A 16% average increase in Central Africa, 21% decrease in Southern Africa, 20% decrease in Northern Africa, 17% decrease in Western Africa, and 5% decrease in East Africa. The following is the breakdown by most populous countries, where we tend to just look at our most uh, populated countries. Egypt recorded a 42% average increase in number of dead rates. Um, Ethiopia, 14% increase. But South Africa uh, uh, recorded a 26% average decrease. Kenya, 23% average decrease. DRC, 20% average decrease. And Nigeria, 12% average uh, decrease. In terms of testing, to date, a cumulative number of about 70 million tests have been conducted on the continent. Last week alone, a total of 1.2 million new tests were, were conducted. And this represents a slight uh, decrease in the number of testing if you compare this to the previous week. Unfortunately, the positivity rate continues to be high and stands at about 11%. You heard uh, earlier on that uh, we will be launching on the 1st of October, our regional collaborating center in, if you recall, we have, uh, when the head of state launched the Africa CDC, there were five region, regional collaborating centers, including Egypt, Kenya, Nigeria, Zambia, and, uh, Libre, uh, and Gabon. Uh, these centers have been operating, uh, most of them, that is in, in Gabon, Kenya, and Zambia, and Nigeria, but uh, some of them have not been officially launched. So this occasion will be uh, to launch that in the presence of several ministers, of, uh, uh, ministers from the government of, of, of Republic of Kenya. So we invite you uh, to be part of that uh, ceremony. So let's conclude in terms of vaccines. Where are we with the vaccines? A total of 181 uh, million doses of vaccines have been procured by 53 member states in Africa. Of that number, a total of 136 million have been administered. Uh, that is corresponding to <clears throat> a rate of 75% of the total supplies have been used up. If you now look at the number of people that have received two doses of the vaccines, what we call full coverage, uh, the, the percentage stands at 4%. So only 4% of our entire population has been now been fully uh, vaccinated. We continue to be encouraged by the progress we are seeing in several countries as they move speedily towards full vaccination. And again, Morocco leads in that uh, chart with about 48% of its eligible population fully vaccinated. 
South Africa with about 14% fully vaccinated, Egypt, about 5% fully vaccinated, Algeria, about 9.5%, uh, and Tunisia, about 21% fully vaccinated. I'm excited to report that Burundi has now placed an order for the COVAX vaccine through the COVAX mechanism, and, and uh, this is being supported by the World Bank as well. In terms of the African acquisition uh, task team vaccine delivery, to date, we have uh, delivered 4.4 million doses of the Johnson & Johnson, that is uh, to 26 member states. And uh, new deliveries will start soon. A total of 12,000 doses of vaccines were delivered uh, to the African Union Commission just to uh, facilitate that uh, staff of the African Union and its uh, ambassadors get vaccinated. These vaccines were procured by the Africa CDC. You also have heard the news that, the good news that um, the government of India will start um, releasing the vaccines uh, or exporting vaccines uh, come October. And we are very encouraged with that um, news and welcome it because it will help us uh, meet our targets. For the vaccination of the continent, if you recall, we have set ourselves a target of vaccinating at least 60% of the population by the end of next year. And to conclude, some donations uh, don uh, continue to arrive the continent. Uh, we have donations from uh, Norway uh, that has donated vaccines to about 400,000 vaccines, AstraZeneca vaccines to Uganda, about 124,000 vaccines to Zambia. And uh, this brings a total of about 726,000 total doses of vaccines that Norway has donated. Germany has uh, already donated more than 8 million doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine to COVAX facilities to member states. <clears throat> and Iceland has delivered uh, about uh, 35,000 doses of vac AstraZeneca vaccines to uh, Cote d'Ivoire. Thank you, Wayne. So I look forward to... Um, our interaction. Thank you very much, John. And uh, perhaps to kick off our questions, let me start with um, a quick follow-up on the issue of the launching of that uh, RCC. And before I give you that question, I just want to inform colleagues that we have uh, a notice that came in from our communications officer at that Eastern RCC, um, Addis uh, Sheba, and uh, she's encouraging every one of us, uh, at least those who can, to register in advance for the launch of that RCC. And she has given the Zoom link uh, right here on our chat platform. So please uh, consult that. So let's, um, let me give you the follow-up question on that launch. So the Eastern Africa RCC will be officially launched on the 1st of October under the theme, ensuring effective preparedness and response to current public health threats in the context of COVID-19 and beyond. What level of commitment or assistance does the Africa CDC envision from countries and partners in order to succeed in effectively preparing and responding to public health challenges in that region? I, I think uh, we all have recognized <clears throat> during this pandemic that um, it is no longer a theoretical uh, concept that uh, we must invest 
in our health systems because they, uh, they, they are automatically uh, the, the cornerstones for our development as well as uh, economic growth and of course uh, our own health security. So there, there are a couple of things that we are urging countries to, to invest in and Africa CDC is supporting that. Uh, first of all, is we are saying you have to build your own national public health institute, which is, is it will be the equivalent of having a mini CDC. Uh, if you go to um, the US, United States, they have a CDC, Canada has a public health, Canada, the UK has a public health, England, and, and Norway has the same, China has a CDC, the European Union has a CDC. So what we are urging countries to do is to have their own uh, CDC, which will become their own, uh, what I call in quote unquote, the barracks, <clears throat> excuse me, the military barracks in which you can use in fighting uh, these pandemics, because we now know that these pandemics will be, will be with us for, for a while. The second thing we are working with countries to uh, strengthen their capacity is the workforce development. We have seen during this pandemic how challenged countries have been in terms of deploying their public health workforce assets. Uh, that is the epidemiologists, the laboratory experts, uh, the, the nurses, and, uh, and others. So I think um, that is the second area of, uh, that we are urging countries to work in. Let me maybe go back to the, the National Public Health Institute. There are four things that we want the, the governments to invest in and partners within the National Public Health Institute. One is have your emergency operations center functioning, which is your command center, and then have your surveillance systems and disease intelligence in place so that you can pick up diseases before they become a truly a threat. Uh, have good information system and that you can gather enough data around, and then of course your, your workforce. So I think these are some of the key areas, what are called priority areas that we've identified that are challenging countries and we must invest in that space. All right, uh, thank you very much, John. We have a follow-up question still on that RCC, and it is this. Throughout this pandemic, and even before COVID-19, you have been championing the call for a new public health order for the continent. How does this fit in with the broader vision and mandate <coughs> of the Africa CDC? And how do you see the RCCs contributing to fit into this vision? No, absolutely. I think uh, you are right. We. When I just took the, the, the leadership of the Africa CDC, and I did a, a very simple mapping of how diseases have emerged over the years uh, in Africa, uh, it was very clear that the continent needed uh, to embrace a new public health order to ensure uh, health security. And that the, the, the current architecture uh, doesn't necessarily meet our needs, our health security needs. And wh why is that? If you do a very short trajectory of uh, since of our, uh, the emerging of diseases since independence on the continent, you look at um, starting from 1960 with the emergence of Zika virus in Uganda, and then the chikungunya viruses. Then in 1970, you started looking at the, the emergence of, uh, of the monkeypox viruses in DRC. Again, in DRC in 1976, the emergence of, of, of um, Ebola. And then moving forward to 1980s, uh, the, the emergence of HIV AIDS. And fast forward to uh, now to the emergence of the COVID-19. And uh, you just realize that we are in for a long haul and we need to really step back and look at the, uh, the current health security apparatus. 
If you now create what I just described with what uh, the events that led to the creation of uh, the system that we are operating in now, that is after the Second World War, then, uh, the, the current institutions that we are living with were created after the Second World War. You realize that as a continent, we were about 300 million people at that time. That is from Cape Town to uh, Cairo, from Sen Dakar, Senegal to Mogadishu. Today, we are 1.2 billion people. So it became very clear that uh, as the continent moves forward, and by 2030, it will be about 2.4 billion people. You need to really step back and look at a new public health order. A new public health order that describes the things that I just asked for, which is have your own continental body like Africa CDC that is strengthened. The Europeans are doing just that during this crisis. They are strengthening the European CDC and even having more uh, authority and powers to the European um, uh, CDC and the new system that they will put in place to coordinate health. Second is workforce development. The new public health order, both in the region, the RCCs and at headquarters, uh, uh, will tell you that you need more responders. There. As we speak, as the continent of 1.2 billion people, we only have about 6,000 epidemiologists. If I only use the epidemiologists as, as, uh, as, as a marker, uh, we only have uh, 1,900, I beg your pardon, and our target is to get to 6,000. So we are a long way from getting to where we are supposed to be. So uh, how do we now put our energy and effort and move from 1,900 epidemiologists to 6,000 epidemiologists? I think that is uh, some of the key questions. That When we started talking about um, a new public health order, we were very clear. We said a continent of 1.2 billion people cannot rely on uh, the externalities for our vaccine security. We import 99% of our vaccines and manufacture only 1%. And now we see the effect we are having. Uh, diagnostics is the same. When they, if COVID would have hit us in January, there was absolutely no country in Africa that had diagnostics uh, for COVID. Uh, we started training uh, countries uh, using the facilities in Senegal and South Africa in February. So I think that is the whole concept of a new public health order that is really that we need to step back and take our own, uh, uh, the future of our health security into our hands. Indeed, uh, thank you very much for that. Now we move on to our questions and uh, the very first person to post their question is uh, William Klaus and William is with uh, Bloomberg. So he says, what is the Africa CDC's position on the position of the United Kingdom not to recognize fully vaccinated people unless they receive their doses in select countries. And he adds, even if those jabs themselves are also used in the United Kingdom. Uh, we, we will be issuing a statement today that uh, will state our official position, which is uh, clearly that, uh, I mean, that we completely um, don't understand why this, uh, why the UK has taken this position. Uh, the UK has been uh, an instrumental partner in supplying vaccines to the continent, and which we appreciate. So if in the same token, you send us vaccines and we use those vaccines, and you say you don't recognize people that have been immunized with those vaccines, uh, it sends a very um, challenging message for us, and which a message that creates confusion within our own population and a message that doesn't really speaks to solidarity and cooperation that we all 
bleed uh, the cornerstones and ingredients for us to emerge out of this pandemic together. The word pandemic clearly means all people, and we are in this together. And the current trends have indicated clearly that uh, we are not just at the, uh, uh, at the level of uh, uh, speculating whether we should come out of this together or not. We have seen that even in countries that are fully vaccinated, uh, the variants come in and challenge that. So it means that we need to really try to be more cooperative and express more solidarity uh, uh, than sending confusing messages that will lead to, uh, the, the, uh, to eventually harming the efforts of what we are doing in Africa. So we will issue a statement today, and the statement will be clearly along these lines of um, we regret the, that uh, the UK will take this position, and we really will calling on them to review this because it doesn't speak to uh, the spirit of true solidarity and cooperation. Indeed, I think confusing messaging is the best way to put it. All right, let's uh, move on to colleagues who are joining us online and um, we have quite a number today, actually. So I'm going to be asking colleagues, please, to ask uh, the one priority question that you have so that we can give a chance to the others to fit into the time that we have. So the first one that we have is um, Sophie Mukwena from the SABC. Good morning, Sophie, and please go ahead. Good morning. Uh, Dr. Nkekesong, there were reports this week that uh, you are likely to join PEPFA, uh, you'll be leaving uh, the CDC. Uh, how far true are these allegations? And uh, if you are leaving, will this not affect the work of the CDC at this critical, critical moment? And the last question is on the countries that are not buying or procurement of vaccine are not happening particularly all vaccines that have been approved by the World Health Organization. Dr. Tedros raised a serious concern. Can you characterize those leaders and countries as committing genocide because they have options? So, no, thank you. Thank you, Sophie. I think the, the, the first question about my, uh, my position, you, I'm sure you are referring to the, the New York Times uh, report. Uh, which, uh, as you know, is a media report. I will uh, ask that, I, uh, with your permission, that I don't comment on that, that report because any nomination uh, by any president is the prerogative of that president. And uh, we have not seen an official announcement from uh, President Biden other than a media report. So anything else will be speculative. Um, on the second part, uh, I totally agree with uh, Dr. Tedros that the vaccines that have been um, or given the emergency use authorization should be recognized across the board because it doesn't really um, make sense that uh, we have invested authority in the WHO and then we do not respect what the WHO is, uh, is issuing as recommendation. I think that uh, the, the spirit of that multilateralism must prevail uh, if we need to come out of this pandemic or uh, collectively. Thank you very much. Uh, we stay online and uh, we say good morning or good afternoon to Daniel Arap Moy. Daniel, please just uh, remind us of your news organization and then ask your question. Well, my name is Daniel Arap Moy from uh, China Global Television Network based in Nairobi, Kenya. 
My question to uh, Dr. Kenga Song. Dr. Uh, countries like uh, South Africa and Kenya have done really well, uh, quite well in terms of uh, vaccinating uh, their people and generally dealing with the coronavirus pandemic. But we increasingly still see uh, uh, countries in the West, you know, having these countries under their yeah, travel rate relief. What is the rationale behind this? And uh, don't you think that this could uh, cause a different a diplomatic row between uh, the Western world and Africa in, in general. Thank you. I think, Daniel, you, you are really, um, you nailed it on the head. That is what we have been uh, all asking for, that uh, we should move away from this confusing uh, messaging and, and, uh, and decisions that are really not uh, backed by science. And, and, and actually base any decision uh, uh, using uh, good information or evidence. I think there's absolutely no reason why uh, countries are vaccinating, like you mentioned, Kenya, South Africa, Morocco, and you turn around and you put them on, on a list that uh, begins to create stigmatization. I think that is just uh, clearly, <clears throat> clearly not acceptable. I think we should be all raising our voices and condemning such uh, uh, behaviors. That is not what we need for, for, uh, for this pandemic. Thank you, Doctor. All right, uh, thank you very much. Uh, let's uh, take our last uh, person from the online questions for this uh, segment before we move on to the WhatsApp platform. And uh, let me say good morning to Paul Adepoju. Paul, please go ahead with your question. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. John. And uh, so uh, going regarding, I would like to know what you consider to be um, the major uh, message uh, around how health leaders like you and um, the current director of Nigeria's Center for Disease Control, uh, the message that health leaders like you have really shown the world in providing leadership around uh, the COVID-19 pandemic and its implications uh, for what uh, Africa's manpower roles can be in global health. And um, regarding the issue of European countries not recognizing uh, uh, some vaccinations in Africa, I don't know whether there is an, an official explanation regarding what their concerns are that you'd like to share with us. Thank you. So, uh, Paul, I didn't get a second question, but let me um, try the first question. The, the internet keeps dropping a little bit, so but let me uh, take on the first question. There is, I've, I've spent four and a half, four, four and a half years uh, on this position, and it's just very clear in my mind that the continent has a, a huge human capacity uh, for public health and including both at the leadership level and at a more operational level. What is the challenge on the continent is such a vast continent is how do you bring that expertise together? And that is where Africa CDC has been focusing. And we've created networks of national public health institutes, including the Nigeria CDC, where uh, my friend Chikwe uh, used to be the director and did an outstanding job. We network ourselves and meet regularly. We used to meet every year to uh, bring together that expertise. If you look at across... Welcome back. And uh, that was an excerpt from a briefing delivered uh, by the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, uh, Director General 
Dr. John N. Kangasong, uh, talking about uh, COVID-19 on the continent, uh, the vaccination process, and other uh, public health issues. That's going to conclude our program uh, for today, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe, and uh, we've been broadcasting today on uh, Saturday, September 25th, and the early morning hour of Sunday, September 26, 2021. We've been broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. If you'd like to have access to this program, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And if you'd like to have access to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to panafricannews.blogspot.com. I'm going to be closing out uh, with the music of Kenny Burrell and John Coltrane from 1962. This is Abayomi Azikawe, and have a beautiful week. Thank you.